Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Evenings at 6.30. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm looking at Second Thessalonians chapter 1, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great way to start the day. Grace and peace to you. I'm actually needing those words myself today. We have a great show. You know, on Tuesdays, we always start with Rob Bluey. He's the executive editor of the Daily Signal, which is a great website to go for news, dailysignal.com. And then I'll be joined by Ryan Loxmo, who has uh, written a great book, on small groups, small groups made easy. You'll find him delightful. And then Dr. Bruce Ashford is going to be joining the program, talking about the justified reasons for war. And then a replay with Jonathan Kahn. This is such an amazing interview. I want you to hear it again, because I want to listen too. Let me take 60 seconds and get the day started. If you're in need of prayer or would like to pray for others, we have a helpful resource for you in Prayer Works. When you go to MyFaithRadio.com and click on the Prayer Works link, you'll see numerous prayer requests listed. Click on Add a Prayer to submit your request or pray for the requests listed and then click on I Prayed for the corresponding request. Experience the power of believers praying for each other through Prayer Works. Jesus said that in this world there will be suffering, but we can take heart because Christ has overcome the world. Maybe you or a loved one are in a difficult season or have endured many years of suffering. You know the Bible is the source of truth, but how can it help you move beyond your suffering and find hope in Christ? The Beyond Suffering Study Bible, created by Johnny Erickson Tata of Johnny and Friends Ministry, provides insights through short devotionals, connection points, highlighting key verses, and more. Faith Radio is giving away one copy each week this month. Enter to win at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. It is Tuesday, November 5th, election day for many people going out and voting. Always interested in hearing what's going on in our, our Washington, D.C. area. Rob Louie is, of course, my guest on Tuesdays, and he is the executive editor of the Daily Signal. Fantastic website. You must go to dailysignal.com is the place to check it out. Rob, welcome. Thanks, Bill. And I have my I Voted sticker on, so appreciate you encouraging uh, citizens to exercise their uh, their responsibility here and, and head to the polls and, and cast a vote for whomever they choose. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a great uh, responsibility we have as Americans. Indeed it is. So what's the spirit like with uh, a winning team in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> well, it was uh, all cheers at the White House yesterday, I will tell you. It was uh, quite phenomenal to see the Washington Nationals uh, celebrate their championship. Of course, they've they've been partying all over Washington. They went to a Capitals hockey game. Nice. They, of course, had a ma- big parade uh, through through the city streets on Saturday, and uh, it's uh, it's just a tremendous uh, spirit. I think, uh, you know, something that Mike Rizzo, the general manager, talked about at the White House yesterday, which – uh, was really encouraging because you and I have talked about this many times on on the show. Uh, it's the spirit that uh, that was um, able to overcome uh, some of the 
partisan divisions in Washington, D.C., where you had Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives come together and cheer for you know, a common team and, and hopefully set aside some of those differences and maybe uh, mend some of those friendships that have been broken. Because uh, really, at the end of the day, I, I think people should set aside uh, some of that, uh, those hard feelings. And, and if a sports team can help pe- bring people together, I'm all for it. Yeah. And I have a guest uh, coming up a little bit later in the show who lives in Houston, so I'm sure he won't be as happy as you are. <laughs> well, you know, at heart, Bill, you do know I'm a Pittsburgh fan oh, all I know the way that. around. I know but, that. But, but if, if Washington, uh, you know, as somebody who was here when Washington uh, first got the baseball team in 2005 and to see them struggle for, for those early years and overcome some of the adversity this year, uh, you know, it really goes to show, um, you know, as – as uh, President Trump said yesterday, it's really important advice, not only for a sports team to stay in the fight, but uh, but for, for individuals as well. I mean, you never know the way things are, are going to shake out when you feel down and out. Uh, you know, you can really turn your life around or turn things around as this Washington Nationals team did. So a good analogy for, for what hopefully we can all do and, and be better people, better Christians. Right. Now, Jared uh, Stepman and Fred Lucas, a couple of colleagues of yours, had a chance to sit down with Judge Rogan and talked about the impeachment process. Tell us what they learned. Yes, well, <laughs> we have uh, we have been trying to educate uh, the American people on the impeachment process. So, uh, Fred and, and Jared have done some excellent work looking back historically at uh, how things have, have worked in the past and what it might mean uh, for what we find ourselves in today uh, with an impeachment inquiry and, uh, and a Senate vote. So, in this case, yeah, talking about uh, you know what things were like and, uh, and and just exactly how the process played out. You know, it's really interesting, Bill, uh, to, to see. Uh, how senators are reacting, how members of Congress are are approaching this. Uh, Of course, you have the the breaking news today that the uh, House wants to call the acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. Um, You know, I'm not sure exactly what the timing will be. It seems that uh, the Democrats hope to wrap this up by the end of the year, but it's going to be really interesting. I think we all know what the outcome likely will be in the House. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not not anyone surprised that they have the votes to impeach this president, Um, and I don't think that's going to change even if as you know, new information comes forward. I think what will be really interesting to watch, and it's an area we're focusing on, is what happens when you go to the Senate. And that's one of the things that Jarrett and Fred have, have really focused on and tried to do and explain you know, how the Senate uh, could do this. Of course, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court comes over and presides over the Senate in this case. Uh, the senators act as jurors. Uh, they need two-thirds uh, there to vote to convict and remove the president from office. Uh, at this point, they don't have the votes to do that. Uh, but it's something that we're going to keep a close eye on. It's a, certainly a historic moment. It rarely happens in, in America. And uh, here you have, um, you know, Bill Clinton and uh, and uh, Donald Trump, uh, both in our lifetime, uh, experiencing this. And of course, uh, Richard Nixon uh, resigned before uh, anything really amounted to much. So it's uh, it's a rare occurrence in our country, and hopefully it'll stay that way. Yeah, I hope it does, too. So, Rob, Twitter is going to ban political ads. Is that going to make things better or worse? Oh, I don't think it's going to make things any better, Bill. I think it's a mistake on Twitter's part. I've been vocal about that. Uh, you know, I'm I'm somebody who always values freedom of speech as somebody who works in mm-hmm. uh, in, in a news organization and somebody who uh, has experienced censorship firsthand. Uh, when I uh, was uh, a young journalist, uh, both in high school and uh, to a lesser extent in college, but I mean, I I've been in a situation where 
I've had to subject uh, you know, my work to prior review. That's never any fun because you always know that there's gonna, it's going to come back with a red pen. And uh, essentially what Twitter is saying here is that as a private company, and they have every right to do this, they are going to put in place a policy in which they don't allow these political advertisements. Well, how you enforce something like this, I don't know. I mean, most things in life are political at one level or another. I mean, look, look at the, the nature of uh, how politics has crept into sports lately. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all over the place. So I, I will be interested to see how Twitter actually uh, carries this out. I much prefer the approach that Facebook is taking. I think of Facebook uh, saying that, look, it's, um, it's not going to, to pick winners and losers here. It's going to, to let this air out and let the market decide. I think that that's much better off in terms of how we, uh, we, we handle these types of situations. And in Twitter's case, uh, all I can say is that I think they're, they're making a mistake, and I hope that there's enough public pressure uh, that, that, they'll, that they'll change their mind uh, down the road here. You know, well, Rob, speaking of censorship, explain to me and our listeners about the standoff that the Heritage Foundation is having with YouTube right now. That's right. Well, so just today, Bill, uh, this is this is also breaking news. We have uh, just released a new video in which we uh, we take on YouTube for censoring a Daily Signal video. Uh, the Daily Signal uh, nearly two years ago published a video featuring a pediatrician by the name of Dr. Michelle Cretella, and Dr. Cretella talks about the dangers of giving puberty blockers to young children, uh, which at the time and even today you would think is relatively uncontroversial. You would think that most uh, people would probably agree that it's not a good thing uh, to make uh, life-altering decisions uh, for young people who, you know, in, in, in many cases could be younger than 10 years old, uh, as we, we talked about last week, the, the young boy from Texas. Uh, you know, this is a situation that uh, has obviously grown in importance and controversy over those last couple of years. And this summer, YouTube updated its hate speech policy and subsequently removed this video of Dr. Critella because they found it objectionable and in violation of its policy. We think that that's a mistake on YouTube's part. We, we strongly disagree with that. We've re-released the video. We've taken out that sentence, but, but in its place, uh, made a, a strong commentary about why we think it's important to have a free, uh, free expression of these ideas and why censoring a medical doctor's uh, opinion on this is the wrong move for YouTube and why it's not going to benefit their users. I think, unfortunately, this is something that YouTube feels that uh, they, you know, with the political correctness that our cultural faces and the types of employees who who work there, uh, you know, they've bowed to that uh, that mob mentality and they're going to stand by this decision. Unfortunately, but we're going to fight back. Wow, that is amazing. You I mean you can't spank your kids, but you can give them puberty blockers. Well, it's uh, it, it it truly is, and uh, and again, look, this is not just me spouting off my opinion on YouTube. This is a medical doctor. This is a pediatrician who is giving her professional advice. This this right. should really be an uncontroversial issue, and the fact that YouTube is is banning it. I mean, frankly, Bill, it shouldn't matter whether it's me or the doctor saying right. this. Right. I mean, I, I I I I don't think that it rises to the level of hate speech, um, but the fact that it is a doctor and that this is how they're even treating her uh, is just something that I. Think think we all need to be mindful of. I mean, and it's why there needs to be alternatives in the marketplace. I mean, YouTube should not be the dominant player. We, we need to, you know, have alternatives out there where conservatives or Christians can take their beliefs and, uh, and, and go around some of these censors who, who work out of Silicon Valley. Uh, I don't want the government to step in here. I mean, I don't think that's an appropriate role for the government, but I do think that the user base and the public, uh, you know, has a right to speak up and share its opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because I was reading about this uh, birth coach uh, from the UK, this doula uh, coach, and she was resigned from her position because she said only women have babies. 
and that cost her the job. She ended up resigning because that was hate speech. Well, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things where you increasingly see uh, not only uh, individuals and uh, like that uh, suffering, uh, you know, some of the consequences and mm-hmm. and and you know, uh, but but corporations doing this. I mean, Amazon, which uh, is, as you know and your listeners know, is uh, made a big decision to move its uh, second headquarters to the Washington D.C. area, is advertising in a TV commercial, and one of the things that they're promoting is that they are a trans-friendly company in their their television commercials. Um, and then you have other companies like Always, uh, you know, which makes uh, you know female hygiene products, removing. The Venus symbol off of the packaging because they didn't want to be exclusionary of, of certain individuals. Well, I mean, you know, at some point you have to wonder, you know, um, when are we going to stop this? Uh, you know, the, the, these types of changes uh, that uh, we've known um, for for centuries in yeah. terms of what it is to be a man or a woman. So true. Rob Blue is my guest, executive editor of the Daily Signal. Let me take a short break. We'll be right back with Rob. Back to the show. Always delighted to talk to Rob Bluey, executive editor of the Daily Signal. So, Rob, I was looking at the uh, state of Missouri has down to one abortion clinic, and their Planned Parenthood is uh, is fighting to keep it open. Yes, they they certainly are. I mean, Planned Parenthood is going to some great lengths uh, to do this. I mean, first of all, I mean it's one of those issues where I think you've seen in in a number of states uh, that well shifting public opinion. First of all, I mm-hmm. think um, you know as a younger generation is growing up and and experiencing the technology uh, that you have. I mean. Bill, as as uh, as a father, you know we have a newborn. Uh, you know it was, and and it's been seven years between between kids uh, and the, techno- <laughs> the, the technological advances that that we experienced between, uh, you know, our child who was born in 2012 and the child who was born in 2019 mm-hmm. uh, was quite remarkable. I mean, it is amazing how how quickly technology has progressed when it comes to uh, maternal care and uh, and and pregnancy. And so I think it's one of those issues where uh, you know it's becoming harder for uh, organizations like Planned Parenthood and why they've resorted so much to rely on politics uh, to to get their message out and not necessarily medical science, because I don't believe uh, that the medical science uh, supports it. And uh, and that's why I think you're seeing people uh, change their minds about this issue and why it's becoming increasingly more difficult to find places to, uh, to, to carry out procedures like abortion. Yeah. Rob, is there any country uh, in the world that's been able to provide uh, government uh, health care, and they've done that without crushing taxes on the lower income taxpayers through whether no. it's well, whether it's well, income well, tax or payroll taxes or whatever. Well, certainly there have been governments the United Kingdom being one notable example, Canada, that have attempted to do so, Bill. But I would argue that the results are, are, are devastating and you find people seeking out alternatives or, or finding their own health suffering as a consequence. And that's exactly what would happen if we went to a system like Medicare for All. Of course, this is a hot topic in the news because mm-hmm. you have – 
uh, senators, presidential candidates proposing these sweeping plans for how they would radically transform America's health care system. And you have a, a, a significant debate, in fact, playing out in the Democratic Party right now about you know, how, uh, how aggressive they should be when it comes to this particular issue. And, and frankly, um, you know, as, as somebody who uh, is blessed generally with, with good health but has you know, had to rely on, uh, on the health care system uh, with a son who uh, – broke his arm a couple of months ago and obviously a new baby. I mean, we spent a fair number of time in doctor's offices and <laughs> hospitals. And, and I can't imagine uh, a system where, where that type of care would be, would be different or restricted and we wouldn't necessarily be able to make the choices that, uh, that, that we made. And that's essentially what, uh, what's being, what will be asked of us if we go to a system like Medicare for All. The government will have a whole lot more control over what you can and can't do. And, uh, and frankly, that's not a, not a good Good decision uh, on the part of the United States. That's not the kind of freedom that we want uh, in terms of the access that uh, that we've come to expect, and and it's why people from Canada and the United Kingdom look to our system, and I think are envious of it. Uh, yes, they may pay less uh, in some cases, but the the quality of care is not nearly as superior as what we have in the United States. Yeah, yeah. There's a fair amount of dissidence among the presidential candidates. I think Elizabeth Warren's proposal. She always says only you know only the Cajillionaires are, are going to have to pay more, and everyone else, it's going to cost them less. That seems to be her buzzword, but she never talks about the crushing taxes that would be coming in. It doesn't seem to be a winning idea. That's right. Well, not only the crushing taxes, uh, that's one factor, but as, as many independent news organizations have pointed out, I mean, this is not exactly conservatives that have needed to point this out, Bill. What you also will have is is businesses, which typically you know, are the conduit for getting your insurance. So I have my insurance through the Heritage Foundation. And, you know, those, those organizations or the medical companies themselves will pass along the cost to the consumers. So, yes, you know, you may not be paying the same type of premium that you would today, but you will experience higher costs elsewhere. It's the same thing that we've, we've talked about when it comes to tariffs and why tariffs are, are ultimately a cost that is passed along to a consumer. You're going to be paying higher food, a higher price for food or toys. And it's why President Trump, I think, decided to uh, forego some of these in advance of the holiday season, because he didn't want people going shopping and all of a sudden having a sticker shock when it comes to, to purchasing some of the toys that come from China. And so in, in many cases, these costs ultimately do end up being passed on to the consumer. You just might not re- realize exactly uh, how you're absorbing those, uh, those higher prices. Mm-hmm. So, Rob, is there a chance we could uh, um, have a a different uh, America with uh, a born-again Kanye West out there evangelizing? Well, it's possible. I mean, this is really <laughs> fascinating. I have been surprised, particularly, I think, with people who are, are slightly younger than me, maybe the millennial generation, and, uh, and, and others uh, who have been so captivated by, by Kanye and his embrace of, of, uh, of God and faith and Christianity and the new album and some of the things that he has been saying – uh, coming out um, and speaking out uh, forcefully against pornography and against abortion. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is uh, truly remarkable. And I think about the influence that he can have on so many young people or so many people who who might not uh, necessarily think or share those values. I mean, he can definitely be a big influencer in a positive way. Um, he's already been, uh, you know, somebody who's 
broken through the mold in terms of having conversations with this president on, on certain policy issues, as has, you know, Kim Kardashian. So uh, I, I applaud them for going against the grain and being willing to, uh, you know, to, to challenge the status quo, uh, particularly among the Hollywood elite. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things we just need to keep encouraging, Bill, because I'm sure he's facing pressure from, uh, from some of the establishment back home. Mm-hmm. On the Daily Signal, um, Virginia Allen wrote an interesting story about uh, walking away from the LGBT lifestyle, and it's a movement called Changed, a supportive and loving community of those who once identified as LGBTQ. Uh, that was an interesting story. I just want to let our listeners know they can go to DailySignal.com to continue to uh, learn more about that. But Rob, I wish we, I would like you to say some more. Yeah, it is. It was uh, it was really an eye-opening interview for me to listen to as well. Uh, we interviewed a number of uh, really interesting people at the Values Voter Conference uh, that the Family Research Council does in Washington, and uh, the, this was this was one of the of uh, the several interviews that we did. And to hear about the resources that are out there, I think, is uh, really important because uh, one of the things that struck me was the. Um, confusion that oftentimes people or families find themselves in when uh, a child or somebody comes to them asking questions or and uh, sadly, in, in, in one of these uh, women's cases, um, you know, you, you just don't necessarily know where to turn. And so they do provide in the interview some, some good resources. But, uh, but in addition to that, I think that their stories are just really important to hear, um, to, to understand that there are others who are experiencing uh, questions or challenges in their own life. And so I would uh, strongly encourage uh, your listeners to uh, Check it out, again, at DailySignal.com. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really important that uh, we provide information like this. I, and, it, Bill, this is essentially why the Daily Signal exists. I think it's one of the important roles that Faith Radio plays. Uh, there are so many mainstream outlets that just refuse to, to cover stories like this. They go unreported or underreported. And uh, it requires alternative media outlets like ours uh, to make sure that, that people know about this news and information and can easily access it. Right. Now, I mean... Uh... Speaking along the same line, there's a great article in the Daily Signal about the transgender politics being injected into the schools. That's right. Yeah, right, right here locally. I mean, uh, we, we have a, a front row uh, view. I'm sure it's happening in communities all across the country. But in northern Virginia, it is, uh, it is on full display. Um, and again, uh, you know, this is one of the elections do have consequences. And, uh, you know, this is one of those, uh, those factors that comes down to school boards. People don't necessarily, it's not front and center in their minds, but those school boards do play important decisions when it comes to making, uh, making policy, taking policy actions like this. And uh, yes, introducing this in schools is, has become a high priority. Uh, as, as a father of uh, two elementary school students, I mean, it's, it's one of the things that's on my mind. I'm very careful about everything that comes home from school, keeping in touch with, uh, you know, the teachers or other officials at the school to, you know, talk about that next week. Uh, you know, they have a session uh, for parents to come in and look at the, the sex ed curriculum. Uh, you better believe I'm going to be reviewing it um, and, 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 you know, carefully evaluating whether or not I have that conversation with my son, as I did last year, as opposed to letting him go through that at school. So I think parents, again, really need to exert uh, their responsibility and their role as parents here. Um, don't let, just necessarily let the school decide what's, uh, what they're feeding your, your kids. I mean, make sure that you're active and involved and asking some tough questions about uh, what they're teaching them. Yeah. Rob, my listeners love you, and I always feel so fortunate to speak to a friend on subject matters like this. Thank you so much once again for doing the show. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be with you. You bet. Rob Louie's been my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. 
Go to dailysignal.com. We'll take a short break and we will be right back. glad to be having Ryan Loxmo as my guest. He is the lead pastor of Real Hope Community Church in the Houston area, a place that I have great fondness for. I am sure he's a little upset about the Astros losing, but let's find out. Ryan, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Is there a f- fair amount of disappointment in the city after the Astros lost? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Uh, it's not too bad, though. I think everybody around here has a an upbeat attitude about it and ready for next year. So it's yeah. not too bad. Yeah. Houston's a great town. I lived there myself for about a little, little over a year oh, and okay. a half. Yep. Oh, that's great. It's uh, filled with some fine people. Now mm-hmm. you've written a book called small groups made easy, which I love because we need to figure out how to do small groups better. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Is that, was that your motivation for writing the book? I was a small groups pastor for about five years and have led small groups, different churches in different parts of the country for many years. Uh, so I'm familiar with the challenges from both the you know leader side and also the pastor side of overseeing a group's ministry. And um, Bethany House wanted to produce a book about small group leadership and, and make it easy and accessible for small group leaders. And, and we got connected and they kind of just asked me, if you were to write a book about this subject, how would you approach it? And I thought, well, that's interesting. I, I hadn't been planning on writing it, but I thought, thought about it. And I thought, well, there's a lot of resources out there on small group leadership. You know, what would I be able to add to the conversation if I did write something? And as I prayed about it and thought about it, the, the main idea that I landed on, which is really the, the basis of this book, is that almost all of the resources out there for small group leaders and small group pastors are, are highly focused on the practical side of leadership, the pragmatic side. You know, how do you structure your group meetings and where should you have them and ha- how do you handle childcare and, and things like that that are important questions. But in my experience, some of the deepest questions and profound challenges that face small group leaders are not logistical. They're spiritual in nature. It's these fundamental questions of faith that continue to come up over and over as groups face the various challenges of life. And so my pitch to Bethany House was, I'd love to write a book that's kind of in two parts. Part one would be an overview of some of those practical leadership principles, biblical principles, but very concise. And then part two would prepare the leader uh, to lead spiritually by walking through uh, 12 key questions that just keep coming up as they lead. Questions like, you know, what is God like? Uh, how does God view me? How do I grow spiritually? How do I pray? Uh, so that the leader can feel prepared uh, both practically and spiritually. That, that was something I felt wasn't really available uh, in the market. And so, so that, that was the approach. And, and that second half that's about the spiritual questions, they're organized as Bible studies. Mm-hmm. So the leader can walk through it on their own, 
to prepare for the group, or they could use those 12 studies as, you know, the first 12 studies that their group walks through. Mm-hmm. So that, that was kind of the key idea is let's provide both practical and theological education for our leaders so that they have some sense of, of where to go. Yeah, I got to say, Ryan, this is a rich resource. I love the way you've laid this out. I love that a small group leader can pick this up and just enjoy it thoroughly, and then it would be something to easily implement into their group. For example, mm-hmm. you take a passage like Romans 8, 1 and 2, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, mm-hmm. because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law mm-hmm. of sin and death. Great question. If we placed our trust in Christ for salvation, we are not subject to condemnation because of our sins. Mm-hmm. How does this change your life? Why is this sometimes hard to believe? Mm-hmm. Talk about getting the wheels turning. <laughs> Yeah, and that's a great example of what I'm talking about in preparing a small group leader to lead is, you know, you when, when you're facing somebody in your small group who is wrestling with the exact issue you just talked about, feelings of self-condemnation, not measuring up, does God love me, will he accept me, am I a lost cause because of this sin in my life, you know, when you're facing a group member or maybe yourself uh, going through something like that, questions of child care and meeting frequency and should we have coffee or those sorts of questions sort of melt away because these are the deep, profound questions of life. And so I felt that leaders should have a chance to engage with these questions because like you just said, I mean, this changes your life when you can look um, at the scriptures and discover that through Christ, uh, there is no condemnation. That yes, there are times in life where we sin and we have to repent and ask forgiveness and things like that. It doesn't change our fundamental standing with the Lord. His unconditional love remains constant, and our 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 promised future is secure. And He's looking at us through the eyes of a, a loving heavenly Father. He's not looking to condemn us, uh, as Jesus said, "It is finished." And so such a fundamental question that will come up in all different ways in, in the life of a group. That question, what you just got at, will show up in all different disguises mm-hmm. over and over and over and over. And so a group leader has to have some sense of how would you respond to this when it, when it inevitably arises. Yeah. Ryan, let's do a little bit of that was then, this is now. Let's talk about uh, small groups in the first century church compared to what they're like mm-hmm. today. Yeah, in in some ways they're very similar. In some ways they're quite different. I think they're different, at least in the Western world today. We have the luxury of viewing small groups as a ministry strategy. You know, we can, well, how do we want to do community and discipleship? Well, why don't we consider small groups? And so we have the luxury of of thinking of it that way um, because we have church buildings and other ways that we can gather together. But in the first century, small groups they wouldn't have called them small groups. They would have just called it church. Right. That, was, that was just the way it was. It uh-huh. was just, you know, you had small numbers of Christians in these large cities and, and small cities, and they would just gather in people's homes or wherever they could, um, the catacombs in the case of Rome, and they would just gather and they knew each other well and they shared life together. They took care of each other. They studied the scriptures. They prayed. And so in that basic sense, I think small groups today are quite similar. It's just let's live our life of faith together and deepen friendships and deepen our understanding of the Lord. Um, but 
today, at least in the Western world, we kind of can view it as sort of a ministry strategy as opposed to just this is the way it is. I will say, though, today in other parts of the world, like in India, for example, where I've had the privilege of traveling and seeing uh, the church planting movements there, um, they're just doing ministry and doing church in a way that is pretty reflective of how the early church looked um, because there aren't many Christians there and there is a, a um, kind of a hostile culture. And so what the Indian church today is doing, and not just in India, but other places like that, China and others, I would say what they're doing resembles what we do as small groups um, in America and the Western church generally. So it's similar to the first century for sure, but also some key differences. Mm-hmm. Now, again, Ryan, I love the way you've laid this out. For example, we're looking at a passage in Matthew 5 that said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Assuming we all want to, we want peace in our relationships. Why is peacemaking so hard? (laughs) I want answers, Uh, Ryan. Yes, why is it so hard? (laughs) Um, Well, it requires (laughs) all kinds of things that are the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness and kindness and patience and things that that really can only be true of us if, if the Lord is working in our hearts and transforming us from the inside out. And um, uh, it, it's a fundamental selflessness that is required to be a peacemaker because we often don't want to be making peace because we feel we've been offended or mm-hmm. something like that. And often when we're doing it right, it doesn't feel like it's going very well. That's so true. And so it's it's not that motivating. Yeah, <laughs> and it doesn't so, feel right, but even though it is. It doesn't. Yeah. That's right. And, and, and Jesus is the ultimate example of everything. When he was going to the cross, ultimately making peace, uh, it, it did not seem to be going well at, at the time that was happening. And so, um, but I love the way he put it, you know, the, called children of God. It's, it's a way of saying um, people who seek peace, and do the hard work of that and the selfless um, effort of that will resemble God. It's a family resemblance thing. You know, you're, you, you're reflecting Christ in doing that. So when I think of many people that are unwilling to take the plunge to be maybe lead a small group or lead a Bible study because they feel mm-hmm. unqualified. And sure. Maybe you could uh, encourage and speak to that person. Yeah, I think a lot of small group leaders feel that way. I think that's the first thing to say is it's not unusual to feel like that. Uh, in fact, you know, having worked with hundreds of small group leaders, I would say, you know, the vast majority feel that way for one reason or another. Um, I think part of it is about expectations. We think that, okay, if I'm going to lead a Bible study or a small group, I have to be like a seasoned pastor and a professional counselor and a real-time mm-hmm. theologian and you know, a barista and everything, you yes. know, all rolled into one. And if maybe I not in that order. Things, that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, or if I'm experiencing conflict or other challenges in my group, then I'm just doing it wrong. and I'm not cut out for this. And so part, part of what I tried to do in the first part of the book is to, to normalize those challenges and say, this is part of it. And, and just because you're experiencing X, Y, Z challenges doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Um, there are ways you can work through these things, but it's okay. You know, you don't have to have everything together. And in fact, one of the things I try to bring out in a few different ways in the book is I I kind of encourage leaders not to over prepare Mm -hmm. in their, in their lessons, because it creates that teacher student dynamic that, um, can be overburdensome for the leader and it can actually stifle 
discussion on the group members part. And so view yourself as a co-learner with your groups, let your groups see you learning in real time with them, encourage them, come, you know, um, if you don't know the answer to a question, which will happen for sure, uh, model for them how to find the answer. Don't, don't feel badly that you don't know it, but say, you know, that's an interesting question. I don't really know the answer. Here's what I'm going to do this week. I'm going to email our pastor, or I'm going to email that professor at the seminary down the road, or I'm going to, you know, I'll bring a commentary with me next week and we can find the answer together. That's an amazing way to lead. And that doesn't require you to be some expert. So I think, I think just viewing yourself as serving the group and, and learning and growing with them, that really t- takes the temperature down. And, and Ryan, not to mention, I'm going to give my listeners your home phone number. So they just call you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm available. Okay, good. Uh, Ryan yeah. Loxmo is my guest. He's written a book called Small Groups Made Easy. And I have to say, this is laid out beautifully. Practical and biblical starting points to lead your gathering. It's got tips to uh, spark engaging conversations, advice for handling tough questions and other challenges. And then also it's got 12 Bible studies that walk you through your discussions. What a gem. Let me take a little break. I'll have more with Ryan in just a minute. Welcome back to the show. I have Ryan Loxmo on my studio line. He's written a number of books. The one we're chatting about today is called Small Groups Made Easy. He's wanting to help us be better in our small groups and not not to have us overreact or overprepare or overworry. Does that sound about right, Ryan? <laughs> yeah, I think so. So many of the challenges for small group leaders, Bible study leaders, um, is is the the expectations that, that they place on themselves that, that, um, really aren't warranted from a biblical standpoint. I mean, leadership in the Bible, I mean, certainly as Jesus spoke about it, it is always about serving. It's always about, um, being genuine and walking with people. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you view small group leadership in that way, you can start to dismantle those expectations that you create for yourself, that you have to have everything together. You have to always be 10 steps ahead of your group. You you know, you have to have all the answers. You get rid of all that and you just allow yourself to be present with your group. And, and you you know, you're walking down a path and you're saying, Hey, why don't you walk with me down this path? We're going to grow together. And I, I think that's a key idea that I bring up in the book. That's important. I mean, I think a small group should be both effective and enjoyable. It has to be both because, you know, if it's effective in the sense of people are gathering and learning from the scriptures, but it's not enjoyable for the leader to be a part of, it's just a burden. Mm -hmm. Um, the the group's going to suffer long-term because the leader is going to kind of limp through leadership. And, um, it's just too, they're not enjoying the benefit of the group. Yeah. Um, and so I think it has to be both. I think it has to be something that is effective in creating community and discipleship, but also that the leader can, you know, take a breath and enjoy this thing and, yeah, and okay. even have moments, even have moments where they are cared for by the group Yeah. and say, I, I need you to care for me. I'm walking through this hard thing. That, that transparency is really important. Right. Let's talk about some topics that may come up. I know there's going to be lots of hot mm-hmm. potato subjects that will come up because of the world we're living in today. But I'm just on page 134 of your book um, called mm-hmm. Small Groups Made Easy. And it says, uh, wealth is so uncertain. Our hope is in God. Question is, how should I view my money and possessions? That's a great question mm-hmm. that would come up in a small group. 
<laughs> and so how do we uh, how do we move through that? Yeah, so so that was one of the questions that I wanted to include in the study because that you know I mean Jesus spoke about money all the time and uh, the danger of it ruling over us. Actually, the way he talks about it really strikes me as money and our possessions will rule over us unless we really actively seek the Lord to to make sure that we are unseating them as an idol in our hearts. Um, it's it's almost the feeling that it's a default that they will rule over us, and so um, that issue will show up in so many ways in small groups when people talk about their financial situations or this or that. And so how we view money and our relationship with its fundamental spiritual question. So, you know, in, in the book, I, I just talk about the, the concept of stewardship, you know, which is woven throughout scripture, our money and our possessions are not our source of security. They are not our, our source of hope. Only Jesus is. And whatever we have been given has been entrusted to us by the Lord to use for his purposes. Now, some of his purposes are that it's used for our benefit to pay our bills and, you know, save and whatever. But, but part of it is to be generous and to give. And in doing so, uh, we strip it of its power over us. And it's a, it's a, a constant reminder of where our true security and hope is found. Mm-hmm. What about when you've got a small group and the people inside the group aren't even sharing beliefs across the <laughs> board? I mean, we're trying to we're trying to build a, yeah. a biblical uh, worldview and a biblical consensus, mm. and yet we've got differing opinions on things. Now, obviously, sure. there can be different interpretations of things, but not the fundamentals, right? That's right. So how do we how, yeah. how, do, we, how do we navigate that when you know I can see a small group leader feeling a little intimidated? Sure. Well, I, I think um, one of the things I talk about in the book um, is that you brought up peacemaking earlier is, is that that's a really proactive thing. And so anytime you're having a discussion with someone or maybe you had a particular small group meeting that was a little heated over the subject matter, that's the time for the leader to be very proactive. If they sense something might be off with another group member and go to them maybe the next week and say, Hey, I don't know if anything's going on, but last week when we were talking about this, it was getting a little heated. I just wanted to be sure you weren't offended, I, or I didn't offend you, and and there may be nothing, or there may be something. But I think the that can be a role that the leader plays is just sort of proactively seeking out the divisions that might be there, and and trying to to heal those, um, and, and and you know holding the line on the the main things, you know what the gospel is, God's character, um, and loving others and loving the Lord, but but. I think also the group leader can allow for a little bit of wiggle room among their members. You know, there, there isn't a pressure. There doesn't have to be a pressure on the small group leader to get everybody in the group to 100% perfectly agree on everything every week, because that will probably not happen. <laughs> and then if that expectation is on the leader, they will um, probably feel like they're not doing a good job. And so I think it's a, it's a balance of, holding the line on the on the, the core of our faith, the gospel, who Jesus is, but on secondary matters of interpretation where there might be a little differences of opinion here or there, allow the conversation to play out, and then the leader can say something at the end of the meeting. What a great discussion. 
Uh, I'm going to do a little more reading and research this week. I might even email a couple people, and I think I might bring some more some more information next week so we can kind of continue this conversation. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very very healthy way to approach it. Yeah. Ryan, do you think that small groups are the best places for uh, people to bring their doubts? Because I think if people show up with doubts at church, they, they fear maybe mm-hmm. being looked upon like, oh, yeah. I can't believe you're doubting that. Is, is a small group a better environment, a safer environment? Uh, it could be. Uh, probably overall, that's true. I think the church generally, from the just public uh, perception standpoint. I think the church generally has not done a good job of saying this is the safest place to come with your hard questions. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to come with your hard questions. It's okay to come here and process through things that might take you months or years. We want you to do that with us. Or we're not going to make you feel like an outsider. Um, and so I think the church generally has struggled with that. I, I do think that small groups though can be for some people, an easier place because it's a smaller group of people and maybe they feel like it's a little bit more of a private environment to voice those concerns. For others, though, the reverse might be true. They might feel like I'm comfortable sitting in the back row at church and wondering these things, but I don't want to sit across a dinner table and look at somebody's eyeballs and say this <laughs> and have them actually question me. So I think it just depends on the individual. But but I will say I think small groups – can and should be uh, a very welcoming place for people of all spiritual backgrounds to come and to ask their questions and seek the Lord and learn about Jesus. So um, I don't think there should be any gatekeeping in small groups in terms of where somebody is spiritually. They should just be open uh, for anybody to come and to encounter Christ. Mm -hmm. There's a question uh, that probably applies to not only a small group leader, but I have this friend who uh, hosts a radio show, and uh, I was wondering what what he should do if he's asked a biblical question that he doesn't know the answer to. He's a friend of mine. <laughs> a good friend. Yeah, a good yeah. friend. Yeah. I have, I have some Pro- friends like that, too. Awesome, yeah. awesome. It probably also <laughs> applies to small group leaders. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, I think the first thing is to say you will be asked questions you don't know the answer to. <laughs> so so let, let's just get that on the table. Yes. Um, because a lot of leaders feel that if they are asked a question they don't know the answer to, they've already failed. Then how do you go about answering the question if you are already starting from a position of failure? So I think the first step is to say it's not a failure. You're, you're there. You're present. A question has been asked. You may not know the answer or maybe you know part of it. The best thing to do is be completely honest in that moment and say something along the lines of, you know, I've heard – that before, but I've never taken the time to explore it. Uh, what do you all think about that? And you get the group talking, and then the leader, again, the leader is like the curator of the conversation. So the leader at the end can say, you know, this is fascinating. Um, I'd like to learn more about it. If you all are open to this, I'm going to do some research this week. I'm going to email our pastor. I'm going to email this professor. There's this book I heard about I'm going to order a copy of. Would you mind if I bring some more about this back next week. And what's wonderful about that is you're teaching your group it's okay to not know the answers, and you're teaching the group how to find good answers. So you're not saying, oh, I'm going to go just Google this and go with whatever shows up first. You're, you're saying, I'm going to find the reputable sources where I can actually find true answers on this. 
Um, and so you can actually teach your group not only what the answer is, but you can teach the group how to find answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the, the hardest part of writing this book? What was the, the one chapter or the one concept you had the most amount of difficulty communicating? Um, that's a good question. I, I would say the hardest one was about the personal challenges uh-huh. in the group. So kind of like needy group members, <laughs> pe- people who monopolize awkward silences, awkward silences, yeah. things like that. Because slow growing, I, no growing friendships. Yeah. Yeah. These are the things that can discourage a leader. Sure. And, um, what's hard about writing about those is I don't want to make people who behave that way seem like they're bad people or bad group members. It's that this is normal. If you're leading a small group, you're going to have all variety of people like this. And maybe you've been that person mm-hmm. uh, who monopolizes conversations and things. So I think trying to show, okay, if you've got people in your group who are needy people, and, and I distinguish in the book between needy people and people who are in need, people who are in need are absolutely, you know, an important part of your group. If someone in your group is in need, you're there to serve them. But a needy person is kind of like, you know, every conversation, you know, ultimately is about them and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I wanted to write about how to deal those, deal with those challenges without demonizing those people or mm-hmm. acting like they shouldn't be in the group. That's not true. And so it was really, okay, here's several types of people that'll probably be in your group at different times. How can you gently, lovingly, um, kind of lead them away from some of those tendencies in a way that doesn't make them feel condemned or unwelcome. And, and so I guess that was the hardest just because I really wanted to find that nuanced yeah. uh, discussion. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating book. You laid it out well. It's uh, well-constructed. It's uh, it's an easy read and it's it's quite engaging. So thank, oh, you, thank for, you. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you bet. it. Yep. Ryan Loxmo has been my guest. His book again is called Small Groups Made Easy. If you're looking for a book on small groups and how to lead and how to get the group going, this is the book you're going to want to jump on and get. Um, We'll take a short break and be right back with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.